Hello, everyone. Welcome into another episode of the MLS Bench Podcast. I am Joey, and with me today to discuss a jam-packed week of MLS action are Andres, and uh, we have a special guest today. Uh, both Matt and John are out, so I decided to, you know, get some more expertise, and today I have Tim Sullivan, host of Club & Country, uh, it's a Nashville SC pod, on to talk with us about, you know, all things MLS. So, Tim, how's it going? Not too bad. You're putting a lot of pressure on me by saying uh, that I'm some sort of expert, but I, I hope I can live up to it. No, I think I think you can do it. I think you can do it. And um, Andres, how's it going? I'm doing good, man. Thanks, thanks for having me on another week. Another week in the books. Yeah, getting close to crunch time. I mean, between the midweek and obviously the rivalry weekend, uh, it's crazy. So. I guess we'll just jump right into it, um, hit kind of the major storylines, and we have you know, a little fun mid-season award thing that we'll hit at the end of the pod. Um, but I'll start with the, um, by far for me, you know, the, the storyline of the weekend, which was El Trafico, as expected. Uh, Giorgio Chiellini, first time on the bench for him. He did not make his appearance, and Gareth Bale introduced to that crazy uh, 32-52 crowd out there Friday night in... LA. Uh, game finished uh, in favor of LAFC, which feels like an anomaly uh, in, in terms of this uh, derby, because uh, recently it's been the Galaxy, but hey, um, LAFC take the 3-2 win at home, and there is so much to talk about from this game. Andres, I'll just kind of throw it to you, however you want to approach this one. <laughs> yeah, so I think for, for me, uh, uh, maybe the LAFC side is the more glamorous side. Um, at this point, with with you know all things considered, Bale and Chiellini and so on, but I think this this game really showed um, what the Galaxy are struggling with tactically, figuring out how they want to play in terms of how they want to set up their midfield while trying to get uh, you know Chicharito and Jovic on on the field at the same time. Um, and I thought you know when at, when the game's one one. Um, and they switch from the 4-4-2 and they bring Vasquez and Kletchton on um, try to change that shape. It, it, it just shows that Vanny's kind of struggling and going back and forth with with how to best approach this team, basically because the wingers haven't been producing. Um, so, yeah, I think for for me, from an LAFC side, I think we, we know that they're either the best or one of the best teams in the league. Um, but from a Galaxy side, it just showed how in flux they are uh, tactically still. Um, I thought it was a really interesting game and, and, a, and a fun game to watch. Uh, and I, I'm really curious to see how the Galaxy approach the, the last couple weeks of the, of the season, uh, if, whether they want to switch out of that 4-4-2 and, and go back to something with one striker or if they, they stick with it. Because I thought they were better in the 4-4-2, even though they didn't have control of the ball, ball much. What do you guys think? I think that the tough thing is that, you know, with Chicharito and with Jovalich in the form that he's in right now, you, you're you in the tough situation where you almost can't switch out of the two strikers because if you're benching Chicharito with any regularity, it there, it's going to be a problem because he is, you know, kind of almost... He's not bigger than the club, but in the eyes of the fans, in the eyes of his teammates, almost certainly he's the captain and he's 
kind he's the one he's the one to look up to at that club and then you've got the actual performer up top with him i don't think that there's a ton being produced by the wingers at this point i think grand has kind of cooled off a little bit the costa experiment has just not gone to plan at this point and ephra has been iffy when he's come in same with cabral so i'm not sure if you can look to a ton of production from the wingers on that side of it so i'm okay with sticking with the two strikers but like even when vanny switched um to kind of the more diamond shape um on what was it like somewhere in the 60th 70th minute range uh i i called it exactly when it was happening and i'm i'm sure you know steve Turundolo did the exact same thing it became super easy to break down and very quickly lafc took a 3-1 lead in what was a i think tie game at that point um so real issues for the galaxy to address and they also didn't address them in the midweek uh losing 3-2 at home to the earthquakes and the earthquakes haven't beaten many teams this year so that's not exactly what the galaxy want to see coming off of that you know pretty underperforming uh result on friday night but andres i think um your point with the two striker you know question needs to be answered by greg vanny because if it's not you kind of go back down this i don't know if it's a rabbit hole but kind of this hole of it's not terrible but it's not at galaxy levels certainly you know what i mean yeah, and I think it just it makes it difficult for them to control the midfield. So you're giving up, you know, numbers in the midfield in order to have a chance at scoring more goals. And if you switch out of that, then you're giving up your your chance creation in order to control more of the midfield. So I'm not really sure where where Vanny wants to wants to go from here and how he'll adjust. But I thought just the substitution patterns and the way that that game played out was a really clear indication of what the galaxy are struggling with right now in terms of how they want to play. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think when you talk about, um, you know, the players that he brings off the bench are good players in question and, uh, Vasquez on the 69th minute sub, uh, which really at that point kind of shifts the field, taking off both wingers and then Cabral and Friovalic. Those are good subs, but those are subs that just aren't, uh, they weren't more dynamic, I guess, than the players that they took off. Uh, they do get the goal later. Um, beautiful header by Rayon Ravellison, but it's not enough as uh, LAFC get the two goals in two minutes. The Fuentes had two in this one. Uh, Arango also uh, getting kind of the, uh, the insurance goal, I guess you would say, um, 3-1 uh, at that point, and then Ravellison... Um, with a consolation I think what's interesting now for LAFC is they kind of have four center backs at this point uh, they had um, Ibiaga started this one with Murillo Mamadou Fall and uh, Giorgio Chiellini on the bench so do you see them Andres having some kind of you know center back rotation do you see um, you know what wh- how do you see this kind of playing out because four center backs four center backs that you seem comfortable to start in the biggest matches isn't necessarily a sustainable way to go forward for this club. And it, it's really, I mean, we got, or let's count them, Fall, Rio, Segura, Iolini, Ibiaga. You've got five there, really. Um, 
if you're counting ABR, I mean, ABR who started here and he's been starting on and off for them. I'm, it's one of the reasons I was perplexed by the Chiellini move. It just didn't seem like a position of need considering how much fall has developed and that Eddie Seguro was coming back after being basically best 11 caliber. So I'm, I'm not really sure how you handle that. Maybe, maybe you run some three center back um, formations from time to time. I think you're going to want to bring in Segura in slowly. I don't think Chiellini will be playing, you know, 90 minutes very often. So I think, you know, they've got options and you don't have five center backs that are necessarily 90 minutes fit, but it's, it's kind of a, a weird situation in terms of you're bringing in somewhere where you already have um, plenty of plenty of depth. It's, it's kind of a strange one for me. Yeah, and uh, we finally got our technical issues worked out. Uh, Tim is in, and I think you can talk now. So if you have anything on what we were just talking about with LAFC's you know, center back rotation or on kind of Galaxy's formation, you're welcome to kind of just dump all your thoughts in right now, now that we got you. Yeah, the, the issue that I see with the Galaxy is, is the one that you mentioned, Joey, which is that they, they have a striker who's, who's currently scoring and then one whose job is historically to score and, more importantly, whose job with the Galaxy specifically is to be kind of a face of the franchise. And they need to get them both on the field at the same time if they want to, to both entertain fans and win games. And that makes their midfield situation such a difficult one to figure out because they aren't getting the production from the wingers to kind of assist those guys that much. And so, you know, Greg Vanny is, is trying to figure out a way to, to maintain any sort of defensive solidity while also having the ability to service those guys. And it's been a difficult go of it. Yeah, undoubtedly. I think having to balance, you know, like if Jovalich was, you know, the star guy and scoring all the goals, job's easy. You bench Chicharito because he's not scoring at all. But that's just not the case. And so Vanny's got to kind of juggle this weird act of you have your guy who's your star score goals all over the world for the best clubs. And now he's not scoring for the galaxy. Um, how do you balance that? That's kind of the question. I mean, um, I, Andres, we kind of, yeah, you can kind of hit on that. Yeah. And I, I think the the positive for the galaxy here is that it seems like Jovic and Chicharito aren't, don't play badly together. It kind of works, um, you know, kind of running off each other or, or flicking balls on. So I don't think it's it's that bad in terms of them both being on the field. It's just what it does to their midfield that's that's the difficulty and how it do, what it does to their balance, um, especially in transition. So I think on on the plus side, the strikers don't you know seem to really have an issue playing together. But it, on the negative, you know, it unbalances the rest of the field for them. And the teams had an issue winning, not winning these last two games against, uh, you know, your two rivals isn't going to endear you to the fans. It's not going to ease the tension around um, the facilities at all. Uh, last night, a little bit of a rotated lineup, but, you know, for the most part, the entire squad. Um, Jovalich started again with Victor Vasquez kind of up top, if we can call that kind of a partnership up top. And Jovalich was the bright spot in a 3-2 loss for the Galaxy. He scored two goals. Two really nice goals, like real, you know, confidence, I guess, continuing at this point uh, goals that 
should be really good for him, should be really good for the team, but they're not winning. Uh, Galaxy at this point have slipped um, down to seventh in the West, just barely clinging on to that playoff spot. You know, at one point they were, I think, second or third. So for this team, they've fallen quite a ways. Um, And for LAFC, still, I believe, top of the league in terms of points per game and technically second right now in the league and in the West to Austin FC. Austin with a uh, a game more um, and one point more than LAFC. So LAFC sitting pretty, and the Galaxy have a ton of work to do if they want to see them themselves back where they should. And quite frankly, uh, w- where I think people expect them to be with the lineup that they can field because the players aren't bad. It just hasn't produced a ton of great results so far. So that's kind of El Trafico for you. Um in a nutshell, it was a great game, though, and, you know, super cool to see the scenes with Bale afterwards. Andres, you guys, uh, you, Matt, John did a great job touching on, you know, what these transfers have meant uh, for the club while I've been out. Um, Bale and Chiellini, and I think it should be interesting, but I think when you bring in players of this quality, you expect it to work out. So that's basically it for El Trafico, and I not a game I had anticipated touching as now we move on um, to the Union taking on DC United uh, last Friday, the game that was kind of the, I think it was called the appetizer a couple times on this, on that broadcast, the appetizer to El Trafico. But it, this was the best appetizer of all time because it was seven nil, seven goals uh, for Philly tying the MLS record in terms of, uh, you know, a goal differential in a game. Um, uh, goals coming from Carranza with a hat trick, Aura had two, and Gazdag, I believe, or Bedoya rather, had two as well. So, goals from all over the place for the uh, Union and just lighting up DC United, leading uh, to some key coaching changes that I think we'll hit on in a minute. But I guess first, Tim, I'll start. This is unbelievable. How do you score seven goals in a professional game and make it look really, really easy while doing it? The funny thing is when you see a seven-goal scoreline, usually you think, okay, yeah, a team had to get really lucky. They probably had like three expected goals and, and some, some luck with bad goalkeeping or, or weird finishes or something like that. But this was pretty much exactly as, as dominating as it looked. They had, I think, over five expected goals, DC under one expected goal. So this was a game that you look at it and say, okay, there must have been something fluky there. And the sad thing for DC is that really there wasn't. It was exactly as dominating as it was. Obviously, you look at uh, a team that that goes down uh, five goals at halftime, I believe it was, and they mail it in for the second half, but five goals at halftime is still, um, I believe, ties an MLS record for most goals in a half. So it's a situation where I don't think anybody's super surprised with how poorly DC has played over a lot of the year. And um, while they haven't been good at home either, they've been especially bad on the road. So that's something that um, when you play against a really good team like Philly, that there's a chance that that you're going to get braces from you know three different players, and and uh, it's something that that they obviously did go ahead and and really uh, kind of do some some deep thinking about what, where they want their team to go. Absolutely, and I think um, if you look at Rooney being brought in and you guys are welcome to touch on the Rooney thing at any point now that we're kind of talking about DC I think it shows that they were ready for upheaval this is not you know Chad Ashton you know kind of taking the interim to whatever you know other adjacent MLS kind of circle coach that you would talk about this is you know hitting not the if not the nuclear button 
whatever kind of that second button is because leaving in the way that he did not it him not having the prettiest relationship or so we thought with the club or with the city now he comes back in in kind of a surprise-ish move you know that that picture got leaked of him going on the airplane and then he's the coach like five hours later or something like that um but i guess just to stick with this game just for a second while we can andres we've been talking about a lot in recent weeks and especially me as a Philly fan i've been talking about that Carranza and aura pairing up top and it hadn't really hit up to this point and with all the caveats given that you know a lot of these goals were high expected goal chances and DC is not the greatest team at the moment. You know, you get a combined five goals in a game from them. Uh, that's a good way to, I guess, jumpstart this pairing to what all of us union fans hope it to become. Yeah. And you needed it, right? Because I think the stat was they scored as many goals in this game as they had in the last two months entirely combined. Um, and so, uh, this is a team that has been really, really, really good defensively all year and has struggled, uh, especially the last couple of months, getting that, that final goal to, to get the three points. And, you know, so much of goal scoring is, I mean, outside of tactics and everything, it's also confidence and putting five uh, together between the two of them in one game. Uh, you know, like you said, probably is that jumpstart that they need and, and they come away with another win, you know, th- four days later, uh, la- last night in, in midweek. So this might be what makes it finally click for them um, to get to get going together. Yeah, and I, I think that's kind of the story of a Union fan's life is coming so close, never really getting the final goal and it either being a win that shouldn't have been as close as it was or some draw that you leave feeling disappointed, feeling like you should have gotten more. Um, And so I I think it's crucial that these guys start to hit and start to convert a little more often on their chances because that was just what was missing Um, in in previous pairings up top, whether it be Santos, Berg, who's still there, Shibilko, now off to Chicago. So I think all this partnership needs to really hit in a big way for this team to be successful. Tim, I guess I'll throw it to you, and I will open it up now to Rooney and kind of the future of DC, because you see it online, you see it all over, you know, MLS socials. DC fans aren't happy. They haven't been happy all season. They need this change to really succeed because this team just looks a little dead right now. I feel like that's really the only way to say it. Yeah, absolutely. This is, uh, you know, you see teams pick up a, a mid-season signing in hopes to, to kind of ignite the fan base. You don't often see it with a coach unless, unless it's a situation where there, there is this sort of opportunity available. Uh, Rooney obviously only played uh, very briefly for DC in his time as a player, but um, he was extremely popular. Obviously, the, the one very famous moment of him and Lucho Acosta linking up to, to salvage a result. Um, in the in one of his first couple games with the club, so he's a guy who obviously everybody already knew from his time at at Manchester United, Everton, and elsewhere. But he's a guy who also has history with DC specifically, and I think that that's something that is really gonna. I don't know if it's gonna give him necessarily broad leeway, so much as the broad leeway is provided by the fact that they've been terrible. And even if they continue being terrible, people will say, "Oh, well, he just came in midseason. It's not gonna be all his fault." I think what, what he needs to do is, is kind of bring the same sort of mentality 
as a manager that he brought as a player, which is we are we are a historically talented and, and historically successful franchise in this league. It has not been good for, for like a decade, and we need to get back to that. And I think he kind of understands from having been on the inside what it what is required. Now the question of can he provide what is required might be a different one because he doesn't have a long history as a manager just yet. Um, is he going to be happy with the personal situation that he's, he's going to be in going back to D.C. while his family stays in England? But I think overall, you look at it and you say they had to do something. Obviously, we, we knew they were going to make the coaching change early in the year. They've been with the interim coach for a while. Um, he was not going to be hired as the full-time coach, although there was a chance for that. But they needed a, something to be a spark, and they're hoping that it's going to be Rooney. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, Andres, did you think that this was possible at all? Did you see this happening until like we saw him boarding a plane to DC? Because we know that his relationship with the club was not where you know you would have expected it to be. You know, for him to turn around then and accept a coaching job a few years later. Yeah, so I think for me it was. What makes this one strange also a little bit is that he left DC when things were going pretty well, I thought, um, on the playing side, because apparently his family wasn't you know super happy in DC, and now he's coming back without his family to be the coach in DC. Uh, it makes me wonder how how long that relationship can last. If, are we looking at another year, uh, year and a half type stint? And if so, you know. DC went from a pretty bad place before he got there uh, to making the playoffs that year and being pretty good all of 2019. And then he left and it all kind of went downhill pretty quickly. And if, you know, a similar situation happens where he leaves either halfway through next season or at the end of next season, does he leave them in a, in a worse off place again? Um, I think from what we've seen with him in Derby County, he can take a team that's kind of an underdog um that's up against it like derby county was this year and do pretty good things with them so from that aspect it could be a, a positive um but from the other one it makes me wonder you know how sustainable this is going to be and and no i i don't think any of us really saw this coming there wasn't a lot of rumors until they kind of hit uh leading up and from what i kind of understand i think it might have been in the rooney camp that was approaching dc uh, to see if this could, if they could make this happen, I I don't I don't have all the ins and outs on that, but we'll see. Uh, I want to hope that this is more sustainable and that it's not going to end up with you know DC burning down in ashes again a year and a half from now. But we'll have to see if it's any different this time around. And I think his job at Derby needs some contextualization because. If you just looked at it, a 23rd place finish, 34 points, um, and 7 points in that relegation zone, they weren't ever really clear of it. Um, and for the entire season, for the most part, they were looking up and with their head underwater. That is all great, minus the fact that they had had 21 points deducted due to, I think, like spending stuff or something like that. If those 21 points get added back in they are so clear of the relegation zone they are probably they're somewhere mid-table maybe lower mid-table with a slightly negative goal difference but nowhere near relegation um not anywhere near the 23rd place 
um, in the championship. They're probably sitting somewhere 14th, 15th range. Um, and so that's the crazy thing about how that entire situation went is that, you know, Darby got relegated, but he actually helped that team to fight to, you know, challenge for at points um, to, to maybe get out of that relegation zone, which you wouldn't have thought possible when you, you know, start on like negative points or whatever happened in that weird situation. So I think he's an okay manager. I think the real question is now is that can you get some stability? Because kind of the juxtaposition in that game versus the Union is that you're DC United, you're looking, you know, at your best player who you just bought in Funtas, all the other players and the team in general kind of floundering. You bring in this new coach, you have this flurry of coaching changes with Lasada, now Rooney. It's kind of dysfunctional and it's all over the place versus the union which are kind of that model of you know a a system organization built around those key principles of if you have a system and you bring in players that fit the system it should all work out in the end i guess before we move on tim do you kind of want to touch on how you think dc could kind of get some stabilization because when you play a team you know, like the union who are kind of that definition of stable, like a stable team, it kind of is enlightening, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I think the main thing that they need to do is, is realize what they do have, which I think the main one is, is what you just mentioned, taxi phone test, and what they don't have, which is pretty much anything else in terms of, certainly in terms of a plan. Um, they do have some other talent, obviously. Um, Bill Hamid has, has suffered through some injuries this year, he suffered through some poor play at times as well, but what they need to do is, is figure out a system that's going to work for them. And that's where you can find some stability. If you plug it, uh, a guy like Funtas into a system, you know you have two pieces of the puzzle ready to go. You might need to you know, take a year or two, a transfer window or two, to find the pieces that match the system that you can use to complement him. But at the same time, they haven't had basically any of that stuff uh, during the course of the past few years here. Obviously, they had a, a sort of... I guess you would call it a system. It wasn't one that was necessarily going to work regularly under Hernan Losada, but um, it was at least a system. Um, So I think if they get back to something and say, okay, this is what we do, this is who we are, and we are building around this guy who can be our star, then you can take the steps forward that they need to take. And it is going to take time, but I think having a plan is better than uh, whatever they're doing now, honestly. Yeah, yeah. And that's a good point on that Hamid injury, too. Can't really be overstated because in many ways he's also a leader on that team and um, not having him certainly hurts as well. Andres, last word on either the Union or DC United as DC United kind of enters this new realm of uh, the Wayne Rooney era. Yeah, I actually don't think the the roster of DC United is that, you know, that bad, that understaffed. Uh, don't get me wrong, I don't think it's the best roster out there, but... It shouldn't be a roster that's getting blown out 7-0 and bottom of the East. I don't think it is, at least. There's some players on there that have been on playoff caliber teams and starting on playoff caliber teams. So I think first order of business, like Tim said, is to establish what kind of formation, what kind of tactical um, approach you're going to take. I think it'd probably be a 4-2-3-1. Get away from the three center backs. 
um, and start establishing an identity for being a more difficult team to break down and go from there. You know, basically, you're starting from, from scratch here again. Uh, and from the union, I think we've mentioned on the pod so many times how how much of a solid team they are. We think probably top three in the East. Uh, and it's just what, what that ceiling is for them. And games like this give you hope as a union fan, I think, that ceiling isn't you know, 1-1, 2-1 necessarily. It, it is possible to pour in some goals uh, with the right confidence and and the right opponent in this case. And hopefully that, that translates for, further for them. Yeah, I'm, I'll, I'll will it to happen uh, as a Union fan. Um, and, and for what it's worth, by the way, talking about DC and moving, you know, changing formations, Brad Smith uh, with the ACL injury, um, I, I believe, in that Union game. So that's uh, that's rough for him and rough for the team. And hopefully he gets better soon because when he's flying down the wing, I think that makes them a much more dangerous team. Um, and so without him, we'll see if they're able to salvage anything towards the end of the season. But yeah, for them, last in the entire league, 18 games, 18 points. Um, and for the Union, it's top of the East on 20 games. Uh, NYCFC a point behind them with a game in hand. Uh, so we'll see what happens there as the season rolls along. Um, and now kind of going to the derby of them all, uh, Seattle-Portland, the Northwest-Cascadia uh, rivalry. And coming in this was the game that seattle chose to make their ccl banner game whatever you want to call it um postponing it like three months or really since uh their ccl triumph to make it versus portland to rub salt in just a little bit they were they were the first team to do it and uh they dropped the banner and then proceeded to you know have three goals dropped on them uh portland wins uh, a 3-0, the biggest win for Portland in Seattle um, in the history, I guess, of that rivalry. And I think for Seattle, it's not looking great right now because they had really started to come back post-CCL, um, charge back up the standings as we had all expected. And now they've kind of flatlined a little bit since. So, uh, Andres, do you kind of want us? do you kind of want to walk us through the uh, the 3-0 loss um, and then obviously transitioning toward their loss in the midweek uh, to Nashville. Yeah, so talking Cascadia specifically, um, it's one of those games where where soccer just kind of works out in a way other than how you expect sometimes. And in, and in this case, Seattle, I thought, was pretty clearly the better team for the first 35 minutes or so. Uh, clearly des- deserved a, a penalty in the first half but at, at that point they had already gone down one nothing portland doing what pretty much portland does best which was against the run of play they hit him on a counterattack and nisgoda who's been super clinical uh with with one chance uh, and, and one goal right williamson uh kind of comes through the midfield without really getting any pressure on him uh plays a ball in gets the ball back and then plays a really nice ball over to Blanco who finds his goat on the back post and Portland can do that to you. So I think Seattle was really unfortunate at that point to be down a goal despite being the better team and then not getting the penalty. Um, and then to start the second half, Williamson does what, what, what Williamson does again and he's putting pressure on the defense uh, and draws a red out of Jackson Reagan who's now had a couple of rough outings in the last couple of weeks 
And from then on, it's it's tough to contain a really good counterattacking team when you're down a goal and down a man. Um, and Portland probably deserves the three points at the end. Uh, but it's one of those where one or two things could have gone a little bit differently at the beginning. And Seattle's probably walking out with a win and things just didn't work out and it went the other the other direction. Yeah, um, rough. I think initially uh, Seattle fans can feel slightly hard done by by the referee. Um, and at that point, you know, starting the second half with the red card, they just started to it, it started to slip a little bit. Seattle still providing some good pressure, but Portland at, in the end, you said tough to contain a good ta- counterattacking team down a goal and down a man. Uh, Tim, what do you have on this game? Um, I, I think Seattle hard done by initially, but credit goes to Portland. Yeah, it's it's kind of the opposite of, of what I said about the DC Philly game. When you see a 3-0 scoreline, you think, oh, one team pasted the other. And it, it really wasn't that. It was a fairly even game. Um, of course, as you have both mentioned, once once you're down a goal and down a man, it's it the other team is going to going to add to their lead most likely. Um, if you're, especially if it's you know for an entire half of the game that you're down that man. So I, I do think when you look at what it says about Seattle in the big picture, people are going to be really upset about it. But you know when when you kind of break it down granularly and say, okay, how did this happen? Y- yes, of course. When a guy gets a red card, he has deserved to get a red card. Or I I think Seattle fans might take issue with that, but that that counts too, right? But the, the point is that it's not necessarily something that you expect to happen regularly. Um, if it does happen regularly, yes, Seattle's going to be in trouble. They're going to be playing with 10 men for a lot of the year. But in the big picture, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit less depressing than the scoreline looks. The problem is, especially in a rivalry game, the scoreline matters. That's what matters at the end of the game. Um, projecting forward, who knows? But, but you know, Cascadia is not about who finishes at the top of the table. Um, at least Portland had better hope that because it's more often than not been the Sounders. But it is about winning on the day, and, and Seattle put themselves in a position where they were unable to make that comeback. A good point. And you know, the 3-0 isn't going to be forgotten anytime soon by those fans. I think if you try to, you know, look out with, you know, a specific result, I understand that point and I and that's kind of the way that I view soccer as well, you know, looking at for repeatable moments. I'm not sure that Jackson Reagan getting a double yellow, um, and then, you know, that second yellow coming a few seconds off the kickoff is a repeatable moment. But then you look at a a loss to a struggling Nashville team, I think, you know, in the midweek. And just if you start to stack these less than positive results back to back, you're going to be in a situation where you have to scrap for that last playoff spot. However, you got there, forgetting the fact that you won CCL, forgetting, you know, that you did have um, a pretty successful two months since you just can't put yourself in a situation for Seattle where you have to struggle at the end of the season. Um, And I think that's what their fans are going to be looking at now. Also, given the fact that it didn't look, it just there doesn't look to be a ton of spark or a ton of energy in this team. Yeah, the one thing that they can take is a silver lining, I, I guess. However, you want to uh, use the term silver lining, but they're pretty banged up right now. They don't have a ton of injuries, but the ones that they do have are pretty crucial. Um, Shaw Paulo, I, I believe, is out for the year. Um, certainly for long yeah. term. Uh, Obed Vargas currently on the bench because um, he's suffering from a back injury. Raul Reed Diaz hasn't played. He did not play against Nashville for sure. So this is, you know, this is not a huge injury list, but those are some 
extremely crucial injuries. Um, Xavier Ariaga just returned. Um, he came on as a sub against Nashville. He hadn't played for a few weeks. So this is a team that, you know, everybody said once CCL ends, they're going to be able to put their focus back on MLS and, and get back into position. The problem is once you rely on that plan and then you suddenly have injuries when you've already thrown away, you know, a month and a half or two months of the season at the beginning of the year, suddenly your margin for error is super slim. I am, you know, inclined to trust that Brian Schmetzer can get the job done regardless. Um, I think, especially when Rui Diaz comes back, because it's not expected to be a long-term injury, I don't believe. When that happens, this team has all the pieces to go on a run. Um, They are pretty consistently uh, able to boast having the best and most well-rounded roster in the league. That might not necessarily be the case this year, but they're always going to be close to it. They, you know, a three or four game run can really change how you feel about a team. And, and certainly for the Seattle team, they're saying, okay, we're not that, as, that far out of the position that we want to be in. We just need to start finally stacking up the, the good results that we need to, to get back to where we want to be. Yeah. I, I generally take that kind of view on this team. I don't think it's going to be that bad. And I think that this is a team that just given you know the roster talent that they have, they're only a point out of the playoffs, and they should be able to slide back up in there. I think the hard thing is just like not knowing exactly when Obed's going to be back, and knowing that he's a crucial piece. Obviously, Zhao Paulo kind of being their MVP um, out for the year, that ACL injury in the second leg of the final, um, that hurts as well. But I, I think it is good to know, for uh, at least from a Seattle point of view, that they do have a substantial amount of depth that basically all those key positions they still have three guys that can rotate into that sixth position they still have a bunch of guys who can play up top um and so i don't think it's going to be that bad in the end i think the main thing is keeping those center backs healthy um if ariaga is able to pair up with yaimar the way that you know we know that he can um and we know that that partnership can be really good if if that's able to stay pretty consistent i think that seattle has a good enough base um, and, you know, good enough midfield to move forward and get back up in the playoffs. But Andres, I, I think for them, it is crucial that they start to string some positive results together and not continue this, um, you know, pretty negative streak that they have going. And I think your last point that you made about the center backs is an, is an important one. If, uh, if they can get Ariaga back and healthy and consistent, that's going to make a big difference. Reagan was pretty good throughout CCL and the initial part of the season, but it's a young player, I believe it's his first first year um, out of the Big Ten, and it's difficult to maintain that level of consistency as a, as a young player, and I think we've seen that in a couple moments recently, and it's cost them some points. So I think you're right. We, we were close to seeing the Sounders, or I thought we were seeing the Sounders kind of make that run up the table. They've hit the skids here a little bit again, and it's crucial that they don't let it last for too much longer. Um, but I think, uh, and we've all we've all been on this point throughout the the whole season. We we believe in the roster, in the depth, and in the staff there to think that they're probably going to be okay. It's just now getting into middle of July, so the margin for error is becoming less and less. But yeah, I think I think they'll be fine eventually. Uh, getting center backs healthy will, will help. And I think that was my only point. Just like, don't take my quotes out of context. Like, it, for me, it is just a margin of error thing. And as you get later and later in the season, 
if they're not able to create clear separation between themselves and the playoff line, you can get got. And we saw it happen last year with the Galaxy on the last day. Like, it, it can happen where a bounce doesn't go your way on decision day, and now suddenly you're on the outside looking in saying, how did this happen? It's because you didn't put, you know, enough space between yourself and whoever, you know, that that playoff line team is um, in kind of the dog days in September and all that good stuff. So I, I think for Seattle, it'll be fine. Um, and for Portland, this is the positive result that they need to keep themselves in contention. Um, on 26 points, one game uh, played more than both the Galaxy and Seattle, who they're kind of looking up at uh, that kind of contention to get into the playoffs. But um, I think for Portland, as we kind of finish up the Cascadia discussion, it's, it's not that bad, but it could be a lot better. I think for them, obviously, key, Tim, is keeping Sebastian Blanco healthy and getting him back to even better fitness because he's kind of slowed his way into the season. It, it's crucial that he hits full form as they hit these last couple months. Yeah, and that hasn't been a guarantee or, or honestly even something that you can expect over the past couple of years that he is going to be full strength, full health. And we've seen him, you know, over the course of, of a much longer career than the past couple of years, be such an important piece for this team. And if he is able to be full health, full strength, it's a game changer because um, this is a team that, that has basically been built around him over the years and, and when he has not been what he is expected to be. It hurts the team more than, you know, if Seattle loses their best player, they are going to be a, a mediocre team. If Portland is without him, they're they're straight up bad a lot of the time. But when they're with him, the the amount that they get better is is probably greater than basically any other team's best player. So he is obviously the key here. And then, um, you know, getting continued uh, performances like they got against Seattle would obviously be important. But um, I, I don't think they're going to going to be the sort of team that's blasting people 3-0 on the road a lot they need to um, really kind of lock down and, and make sure that um, the defense is, is solid enough it's been okay it has not been super good I would say it's, it's been about where you would expect for a team that's ninth in the table right now um, if they can improve that and, and get the type of performances that they've historically gotten from Blanco this is a team that has the potential to climb up into the playoff spots. You know, you look at the standings, I don't see a ton of teams that I'm like, oh yeah, I could definitely see them passing that team. So that's a little bit worrisome for them, but it's definitely a situation where they have the ability to do it. They just need to put everything together. Yeah, I'd say that they're, the destiny's still pretty firmly in their hands, but they've got a lot of work to do. Um, uh, n- not all bad for Portland, as obviously as they get their uh, their their three no win in the Cascadia Cup. I don't even it doesn't really have a name, um, but I guess we'll just call it the Cascadia Cup. Uh, we like alliterations here. Uh, they're ninth in the table, Seattle eighth. Both of them sitting uh, outside the playoff line, looking up at the Galaxy in seventh place, Dallas in sixth. So uh, room to work for both those teams as we head into the back half of the season. And now this is where uh, we get to, you know, why I brought Tim on the pod, why we love Tim. It's Nashville time, as Nashville got absolutely smoked um, on the weekend, and then come home and, you know, they get the one-no win um, over Seattle. What's this last week been like for Nashville, Tim, and um, how do you kind of project this team moving forward? Yeah, it's interesting because this is a club that had never really had a, a sustained run of poor form, but they had that over the course of... Um, basically, since the inter- coming back from the international break, um, a win against D.C. was was their only win in the past five games. And I think based upon what we have already said about D.C., that's not something that's necessarily super impressive. But 
getting getting the win over Seattle to kind of break a streak that that had uh, two draws and two losses in it as well was really important. And I think, um, you know, I've, I've already talked about a lot about deserved results versus what the scoreline looks like. They felt like not only should they have gotten a result in Charlotte, they felt like they should have won. I think they won the XG battle by a pretty significant amount. But um, obviously, uh, it doesn't matter if you feel like you should have won when you lose 4-1, first time they've lost by more than two goals. They needed something positive out of the Seattle game. And I think, I don't, I don't know, but I think it's the sort of thing that gets them back on track to where they had been in the first uh, half of the season, basically. It's, it's a situation where they feel like they're going to be hosting a playoff game at Geodis Park. We'll see if that actually comes to fruition, but they do have a, a backloaded home schedule. Um, and if Geodis Park kind of lives up to the, the home fortress that they've had at Nissan Stadium, which they shared with the Tennessee Titans over the past couple of years, um, they didn't lose at home at, at all last year. Uh, they had a bunch of draws, but they did not lose. If they can avoid the losses, if they can avoid the kind of ignominious results like Portland clawing back two on them in their, in their previous game before that Charlotte match, that's what they need to do. They don't need to be perfect. Um, they're, they're going to be in the playoffs if they're, if they're you know, anything other than um, terrible over the rest of the year. They don't need to be perfect to, to host a home game, but they need to be better than they have been the past week. I think what they had been before that is probably good enough to get to that level. I would tend to agree with you. I think um, that home field is going to prove really crucial because um, we look at this Nashville team and we, we look at heading to Charlotte and I agree with you that this was not a 4-1 result, Charlotte grabbing two of those goals, you know, in the closing minutes. It was a really close, good game up to that point. Um, And then then they pour on the two at the end and make it look like a much more inflated figure than what it actually was. Um, You could say the difference is unlucky, and I, you know, am with you that generally, you know, soccer has its swings, it has its lucky and unlucky moments. But you could also make the case that if this if they were at home, maybe they find what it takes to grab that you know tying goal, and instead it's Charlotte who has the resolve to keep pushing, grabs those two goals, puts it out of reach. So I think that's one where you know you can make a pretty good case that the home away thing matters. I think it's also worth pointing out that they hadn't won for a while; they had been on a pretty bad streak, mm-hmm. and yet right now they're sitting third in the table. Now that third is separated from seventh place by only three points. But you're still third in the table, right? So at the end of the day, it's not that bad. Not that bad. And now you have something to work off of because you have that win over Seattle. Is that kind of a fair assessment, would you say, of Nashville? Yeah, the the fan base uh, kind of mood going into the Seattle game was super negative. And, um, you know, uh, my, my podcast co-host and I, on West Bowling, we kind of said, hey, I, it's fair to feel upset about a team that's seventh in the table, but this is a Nashville team that has never had this bad of a five-game run of results, and yet they're still in playoff position. If they get back to any sort of normal form, they're in really good, a really good spot. As we see, it took only one result to get them to, up to third in the table. So it's, it is that sort of situation where, you know, kind of the, the way things feel versus the way the table can be so variable at this point in the year. So many teams are so close, especially in the Western Conference. I think they, they, that they feel like they probably should have a few more points, and I think fans certainly feel like they should have a few more points. But it is a situation where, yes, the, the luck of the game 
um, can work for you and it has worked for Nashville in the past, but it can also work against you and you aren't necessarily playing that poorly, but you aren't finding the results. And I think that probably encapsulated most of the previous uh, four or five games. And that's something that Nashville can hang their hat on a little bit. They're not going to be thrilled about it, but they can hang their hat on regardless of what the results look like. We weren't as bad as, as it looks when you look at just kind of the final scoreboard. And if, if we get normal luck over the rest of the year, some of those results are going to be a little bit better and we'll feel a lot better about where we stand. And quickly before I throw it to Andres for his thoughts on Nashville and I guess Charlotte and uh, as we talk about that result as well, um, what are kind of the ins and outs of uh, Nashville on the day-to-day? Because we don't always get, you know, people who specialize in one team on the pod. So what do you have kind of uh, any, any beat writer news, I guess, you know, that you might have? Yeah, the big question is is whether they make an addition um, dur- during this transfer window that's open right now. Um, they have been rumored, and and I had in the past had confirmed the rumors that they were uh, a major player for U.S. international Shaq Moore. Obviously, playing at Tenerife in Spain, they failed to get promoted, so they probably can't con- uh, continue to afford his wages. So they want to offload him um, at a relatively cheap price. Nashville has been in the mix for that. Um, in, within the past week, there have been reports out of Spain that, yes, he is going to leave. He's going to go to MLS. And I can confidently say if he goes to MLS, it would be to Nashville at this point. That's the big, that's the big kind of like beat writery question right now. Um, in terms of other stuff, it's, it's a matter of when are they going to get a, a couple guys back from injury. Anibal Godoy, the Panamanian captain, has been out since um, playing with Panama over the previous international window. He injured his thigh at that time. He's expected to be back for the LAFC game this weekend, so we'll see if that happens. And if it does, it really solidifies this Nashville team is finally coming into full health as well. Um, And then if they could add a talent like Shaq Moore, um, or frankly, I think fans feel like they need an additional or new right back, um, no matter what. If it's not Moore, it might be somebody else, but we'll see what happens there. But I think those are the the really uh, most intriguing storylines that you would look at as it comes to Nashville. Yeah, thanks for that. And I... That that more Shaq Moore news is inter- interesting, super interesting because I'd seen those same rumors. I didn't know that it was going to be Nashville, um, and and then the Godoy thing. I love watching Godoy play. Saw him live uh, versus the U.S. in March. Um, he's just one of those players that just makes stuff happen. And I, I love to see him play. So hopefully he gets back healthy. Andres, what do you have on Nashville and or Charlotte, especially because you know we, we've been talking about Nashville. And how they were maybe slightly unlucky in that game, but at the same time, we've got to give credit where it's due. And a four-one win at home to continue that kind of um, this kind of streak that they've been on since they fired Miguel and Hale Ramirez. Much to the, um, I guess, the questioning of us. I think all of us were kind of questioning that firing um, because the results up to that point had been pretty good, at least in terms of expansion teams. They've still got it going slightly better even uh, since he left and are still sitting above the playoff line. So what do you kind of have on those two teams? Yeah, I think, I think that's a good point because we all sort of thought they were outperforming the talent that was on that roster early on uh, and getting, getting results with Ramirez that we weren't expecting them to get. And we thought, at least I did that, you know, a a coaching change at that point it seemed like it was personnel or personality based, maybe, uh, you know, locker room type stuff rather than, than performance necessarily on the field. And the thinking was maybe they, they'd head downhill or, or the results weren't going to be quite as good. And it's been exactly the opposite. Um, 
actually the results are, are even better. And, you know, I think Charlotte this year, and I'd be surprised if this changes. I, I don't think they're going to blow a lot of teams out. That's why this 4-1 scoreline kind of sticks out when you look at results, especially over a Nashville team that doesn't really get beat badly very often. But it seems clear to me that they're going to be competitive uh, basically throughout the rest of the season. Their, their results are, are up and down. 1-0 loss Austin, 2-1 win Houston, the big win against against Nashville. But before that, you know, a draw against Columbus, a loss to Seattle. But but consistently right around that playoff line type performance. And I think that we got to give credit to to Christian Latanzio and to the coaching staff and, and to the players on that team because uh, I would not have expected that sort of results to be the case. I would have expected them closer to maybe not absolute bottom, but closer to the bottom than, than where they are right now. Um, with Nashville, I think I was also surprised to look at the table and find them third, just because it's a team I'm pretty high on typically um, and have been disappointed with a lot of their performances the, the last couple of weeks. And I didn't realize looking at the standings that even despite that, that they were they were still top three. And I'm, I wanted to ask Tim what he thinks center back wise, four at the back or three at the back. Uh, it seems like they're you know flopping between the two systems. What, what what he thinks of that tactically, where they go forward from here? Yeah, I think it's it's Gary Smith's preference has been a, a pretty bog standard four two three one. Um, he feels that the best way to get uh, their attacking front three of CJ Sapong, Hani Mukhtar, and Randall Layal to produce together is by putting a back three five out there. And letting those three be kind of up top together. Um, going with the four-two-three-one, they've kind of had to shoehorn a couple different guys in at, at the winger position. Alex Muel being one of them, and they don't really have, um, you know, I, they have a number of center backs who can get the job done. But once you you start with Walker Zimmerman and Dave Romney, and then you kind of have to add either a, a right back or a right wing back. Um, that's Eric Miller, or that would be Muel, kind of playing out of position. Or you have to look at playing playing Eric Miller as a right center back, and then um, you, you you leave um, their very first draft pick, Jack Mayer, who's a center back on the bench. They just kind of have a weird personnel fit for that back three, back five, and I think that that's what has seen Smith kind of say, "Hey, let's until we figure out this right back, right wing back situation." And yes, Shaq Moore would be a very good fit for, for a right wing back in the system that they play. Um, until they figure that out, I think he's going to try to transition to the back four just so that they can make sure they have enough bodies in the attack because that's that's they really want to provide help to that to that very talented front three. He's always going to play with a double pivot in the midfield. I know um, it's it's kind of gone out of fashion in, in Major League Soccer. A lot of teams are going with kind of a 4-3-3 with a single holding midfielder. Gary Smith is not going to do that. So it's just a matter of, of kind of how you distribute that extra body between the attacking line and the defending line. And I think at this stage, he feels comfortable enough with the center back depth that he would prefer to go with the back three, back five, rather than the back four. But um, he really does feel like um, getting more help in the attack is going to be kind of the difference between uh, maybe grinding out results versus kind of opening things up a little bit and, and scoring and entertaining the home fans as they go into this home-heavy schedule to close out the year. 
Thanks for that question, Andres, and thanks for that answer, Tim. And, and that kind of opens up a question that I have. Um, I guess we'll move on after this, so you don't have to keep fielding our Nashville questions. But I, I, it is really interesting I'm to me. Fielding away, let's go. Yeah, I know. I know we're kind of on a, a roll at this point. Um, between the three and the back, like I feel like you can cram the most talent on the field when you play the three-five-two. The question that I have, though, is. At times, it seems a little disjointed when it you know goes into the attacking third, and sometimes it's like Hani Mutar and CJ Sapong versus the world almost because they don't at times get support from you know good at midfielders who we've seen produce in the attack. We just saw Sean uh, Davis hit a banger recently, um, but it doesn't seem like they're always able to get midfielders or those wingbacks forward, and so often it, it just falls apart when they try to transition into the attack. Is is that a problem that Gary Smith sees as well? And how did, does he try to address that when he moves into that three back? Because I like that formation just from a talent standpoint. Yeah, I think that that's exactly the, the issue that he finds right now. It's if we play with that, that back three back five, we essentially are playing on the counter and putting Hani Mukhtar, CJ Sapong, and, and Randall Leal kind of coming on as a, as a late rusher as well. We're putting them out there alone, and if they don't score, um, we are going to have a, a team countering back on us or, or at least coming back at us. We are not going to kind of connect and, and slow things down and play a possession game. They have a little bit more opportunity to play a possession game with a 4-2-3-1. The talent isn't necessarily quite the right fit, aside from the right wing back uh, situation that I previously mentioned. But the, the talent is a better fit, I think, um, for the for the back three, back five. But the way that they want to play, the way that they want to um, have a little bit more control of the ball. Hani Mukhtar mentioned that after the game last night. Hey, we haven't possessed the ball well enough. We've, we've possessed kind of around the back, and then we've countered. Those are the ways that, that we play this game right now, they want to be able to hold on to the ball a little bit more and, and be more of a complete team. And I think that's why the philosophy of 4-2-3-1 is what they would prefer. Um, we'll see if they end up having um, kind of the confidence and talent to get it done. I remember that game in early April versus the crew where it seemed like the crew were just down the throat of Nashville, like every single attack and Nashville had like one counter attack and they scored and they won one nil. That was like pure Nashville. Um, and, Very ball. And that could manifest itself the exact opposite way as well. Um, but nice to see Nashville get back on winning terms. Uh, and thanks for answering all those Nashville questions for us. Quickly, I'll hit um, the NYCFC New England game because we had a little bit of a crazy game there. And then we'll touch on a kind of our midseason awards that we can get out of here. Um, it was in uh, Yankee Stadium uh, on Saturday, kind of the first game on Saturday to open up what was a full full day of games. And it started extremely interesting because uh, what was it NYCFC got three penalties in the first half. Uh, converting two of three, they took a two-one lead in the halftime and ended up winning four-two. Tati Casianos gets two goals. Um, Andres, I think this one's interesting simply because of those three PKs in the first half. Andrew Farrell um, got a red card on one of them, pulling down Casianos from behind. I think that two of the three were penalties for me. The second one that they ended up missing uh, wasn't. So I guess ball don't lie in that situation. But at the end of the day, I think it's a well-deserved result uh, for NYCFC because they did create more in this game. Um, but that that anomaly was kind of interesting to see, and I think it's worth talking about. Yeah, it's always a little bit suspicious, right, as well. And I, and I tend to agree. I think two of the threes were 
two of the three were penalties and the one I don't think was was the second one that they ended up missing. So I'm we're in agreement there. And it it means that at the end the scoreline was the was the correct one or the just one if you if you want to say. But when you see a, a red card and three penalties and a half um, it always kind of raises an eyebrow. In this case, I think it was deserved. I, I, I want to say I don't love the rule where you give a penalty and a red card at the same time. I think it ruins the, the viewing for, for the spectator just because it's so punitive that it's as a neutral, unless, it, whether, unless you're a fan of the team that's receiving it, it kind of takes away from your viewing experience because you know that that team's going down a goal and down a man. That's, that's never fun. Um, but I think what's interesting is even up a man and, and two goals at the time, NYC didn't have a super easy time putting this game away and gave up a, a pretty soft goal to, to allow New England back in before, before they, they put in the last one. And we've kind of seen that from them for the last couple of weeks. So these, these defensive struggles where they're allowing these cutbacks and, and balls in over the top, um, this is pretty new for them, or new in, ter- in terms of that. That wasn't happening a few months ago, and it's happening consistently now. And I think they need to start clean- cleaning that up before before they can really reach the level they were at earlier in the season. Yeah, I'm 100% with you. And we had talked about this team earlier as kind of being the perfect team almost. Like, how do you beat this team post-CCL when they were just on an absolute tear, like didn't lose for something like a month or two months after CCL. It was something insane like that. Um, and they were just, you know, putting results together left and right. And then the attack still looks as dangerous as ever. Just so many shifty players who can pull off stuff that a lot of players in this league can't. Um, but just defensively, there's more questions that I have about this team now than I have really since probably last summer, since certainly before MLS Cup. So I think those questions need to be asked. But this is a team that has won now uh, these last two games, the weekend game against the Revolution and the midweek game having rotated basically as much as possible and then still going down to Dallas and getting the win. Uh, Tim, obviously now we're in the post-Dyla era for this team, um, but they are still... Uh, you know, set up pretty well, I believe, top um, on the PPG battle points per game in the East, second place to the Union, only a point back. So this team's still in pretty prime position to knock on the door as we head towards the playoffs. But do you have the questions that we have about this team, especially defensively? Yeah, I think the the defensive questions can be papered over because Sean Johnson is, is, as he so often does, having a really good year between the pipes that can really kind of bail out some some weaknesses. My major question is, is less about the defense and, and more about if Tati Castellanos gets sold, how do they replace his production? Obviously, this is a super well-balanced team. Um, they've got so much talent, but um, can Aber be a guy who fills the void of Tati Castellanos? I don't think there's a guy on NYCFC that can do it by himself. And, and that's the bigger issue for me because you can win games if you have leaky-ish defense, as long as you can possess, as long as you can put the ball in the back of the net yourselves. The question is, if, if that putting the ball in the back of the net yourselves starts to dry up, can you kind of grind out results a little bit? And I know NYCFC fans wouldn't be happy to grind out results anyway, but grinding out results is way better than, than grinding and still not getting results. So um, if Sean Johnson can keep bailing them out, sure. 
if Castellanos, for whatever reason, ends up not getting sold, sure. But otherwise, there are going to be questions that kind of crop up because of, of potential and expected personnel changes that I think are the biggest problem as you project it into the long run. Yeah, I we keep saying it. Like, Castellanos is probably going to be sold at some point. Maybe it somehow, again, doesn't happen in this summer. Um, but if it does, as we expect it to, and as it's been rumored now for the longest time, um, really the only true forward that they have besides him is Ebert, and I'm not sure if he's going to be the normal starter. And so you look at this kind of striker, maybe by rotation, via a bunch of their super talented young South American midfielders that are super technical, but don't have this both the frame and pure instinct that Cassianos has. He's not a perfect finisher, but he's really, really good, always wins that XG battle, and a guy who I would trust, and I think a lot of teams are going to trust to the tune of $20 million, it sounds like, uh, to score goals for them. So I, I'm with you that if he leaves, that's another question that I have. But it's also a good point about Sean John being amazing, um, uh, once again, uh, super solid, as he seems to just always, you know, pull off. Really, it's a save a game that not every keeper might make, but it, it preserves an important goal or whatever it might be for them that, that keeps them in the game and makes them a tougher team to beat. So I think as we project further in the season, his contributions are going to be absolutely necessary. Um, and very, very quickly, England, they are sitting uh, ninth right now in the East. Um, one point out of a playoff spot, being uh, that being to Charlotte and a game in hand. But still, this team, you know, a far cry from record-breaking supporter shield winner that they were last year. Um, it it might have been because of luck last year that they were at that stage. But yeah, I a deserved ninth place, I think, right now, which is not where this team wants to be. Andres, do you have anything on New England, and then we can kind of move on to our you know fun segment. I think New England put themselves in a little bit of a hole early on with some of the performances and and some of the struggles coming in out of a really short CCL. Um, and I think they've they've reloaded quite a bit here recently. With we talked about la- last week with Petrovic and Barrero, and now I forget the striker that they brought in from from Italy. His his name. Um, I think they're gonna. They have a couple tough games coming up. And they've got a run where they've get they get Toronto, DC, Toronto again, Montreal, and I think with with all their horses ready, I think we're going to see a New England make make a run here. I, I I've said it multiple times. I thought they over overperformed. You know, their points total was maybe inflated to what their actual performance level was last year. Not that they weren't a good team, but I, I didn't see them as a record setting type of team. Um, and I think they're underperforming a bit this year. Um, I fully expect them to be, you know, top five in the East by the end of the season, uh, even if they're not at quite at the level that they were last year. Okay. Yeah, I, that might be slightly higher than what I see them, but given the talent that they still have, and uh, Giacomo Vrioni, I think is how you say his name, um, bringing him in, I think he was... Uh, he was playing in like the Austrian league or something like that. Um, playing for uh, yeah Tyrol in uh, the Austrian league via Juventus. I think he might have been on Juventus um, and then loaned out. Um, so he's clearly a guy with some talent. Plays with the um, Albanian national team as well. 
and they're going to need him to boost, uh, kind of boost that attack. Um, now post Adam Book's uh, Gustavo Bell um, scored uh, a goal or two, I think, versus uh, NYCFC as well. So his output's going to be necessary um, as we head into this back half of the season. Them still, uh, the, the refs still looking up at the playoff spot, and NYCFC, um, you know, firmly planted at the top of the East, um, where they have, you know, as they have come to expect themselves to be. Um, and with the talent that they have, they should be a contender for MLS Cup. So that's kind of all I have in this last week um, of games. It's been crazy, but um, that, that, those are kind of the big storylines, the big ones to touch on. Uh, but now, at this point, all of the teams have played more than 17 games, which is really the halfway point of the season. Some have played, you know, 20, 19, 18 games. So I think it's, uh, you know, high time we do a midseason awards, uh, if that's okay with you guys. Uh, I'll hit a couple, you know, main categories, um, just kind of some basic stuff that we're looking at as we transition into the back half of the season now. And Tim joined us on some short notice, but he can hop in as well. Um, and we'll start, you know, kind of where every major awards, uh, thing will start with the best player so far this season, a lot of candidates, um, some scoring goals, some producing them, but I guess I'll start with you, Andres, who is your best player of the season uh, up to this point. Yeah, so this is tougher than I think it normally is because there's quite a bit of players more or less around the same level and not like one or two real standouts clearly above the rest. Um, but this may come as a surprise considering my Austin comments over the over the course of the season, but I'm going to go with Sebastian Driussi um, and just what he does both scoring and providing and he's clearly the best player on the team with the most points in the league. So I'll go with Drew as my player of the first half of the year. That's so funny. That's so funny because I, I, I decided that I wasn't going to write these down. I was going to just kind of emotionally tell uh, you guys who my picks were going to be. Um, and my heart says Jesus Ferreira because I love Jesus. I'm a Jesus stan even when it comes to the national team. But my head says Driussi as well, just because Austin right now is the best team in the league. He's the best player on Austin. He's been scoring goals and assisting them for fun. He, and he's, I think, probably crucially in this kind of analysis is that he's been continuing to do it. Um, we might have said Mihailovic earlier in the season, but, you know, it's been iffy ever since that injury. Um and for Jesus, he's kind of dropped off as well. Paul Ariola kind of dropped off as well. And so almost by process of elimination, if we look at a guy who's produced since minute one, it is Driussi. Uh, and I, I'm kind of happy to make him my pick. Uh, Tim, uh, what do you got for your best player? Uh, at the risk of sounding like a total homer here, uh, I'm going to go with Hani Mukhtar. He's been such an important part of what Nashville has been able to do. And that's even more so because Randall Leal, one of their other key attackers was hurt for much of the year. He, uh, he sprained his ankle, Bobby Wood, with a, a tackle that just probably deserved a red card, but got a yellow in an early game against RSL. Uh, Mukhtar has basically been the offense for Nashville himself, and this isn't the most prolific team, but I think what he's been able to do, um, especially after an MVP runner-up season last year, He's certainly been the most valuable to me. Yes, obviously there's a slight um, nuance between the difference of, of most valuable versus best. But I think when you look at how important he is to a team that is, is third in the West, which I wouldn't have uh, predicted yesterday, but um, I think 
just there's so much that he's able to do that makes him um, right now my pick. And yes, I am very willing to admit that it's it's kind of a homer pick for me. <laughs> no, I I think you're right in terms of value. Like if we're talking about an MVP, I I'm kind of with you, and I, I think um, it, it's not a homer pick. I I could have made that pick as well. Um, and and very quickly, we're talking about you know other candidates looking at Mihailovic, Ferreira, Ariola, those kind of being those other guys that are up there. Uh, Georgie's kind of got hard done by because ever since that injury that he suffered, um, uh, right before that international break that he was scheduled to come in with the U.S., he hasn't played a game, and so maybe it would be him, but he just hasn't played, and that's super unfortunate because I think um, otherwise he would be firmly entrenched in this conversation as well. Uh, and right now, by the way, uh, the Golden Boot uh, race, uh, Tati Cassianos, um, 12 goals, thanks to his uh, two goals that he scored versus um, New England. Hani Mutar, uh, your pick Tim on 11. Jesus Ferreira on 11. Jeremy Abobasi on 11. And Sebastian Driussi on 11. So that Tati at the top, all those uh, guys chasing him. Um, so... I, I think all of our picks are kind of in that conversation if you look at the stats as well. Uh, so moving on, best manager. So I think not just the manager necessarily of the most successful team, but the manager that's maybe elevated uh, their team the most. And once again, I'll start with you, Andres. So I'm torn here with uh, with a couple of picks, but I have been about two or three weeks now talking about my recent love affair with FC Cincinnati. And so I'm going to go with Pat Noonan here. Um, if we look at that roster, most of it was already in place at the end of last season. Um, and we all know what a dumpster fire the first three years of FC Cincinnati has been. Um, and they're just so much more difficult to beat now. Um, lately, they've gotten Brenner going. Um, they've got that, that front three working together. And, and they're just so much better defensively and so much more solid. Um, that's That has to do a little bit with the roster addition, but I think a lot of that has to do with what um, Albright and Noonan have brought culturally from Philly. Um, and I think they've just done a really good job to, to have them competitive. So I'm going to go with Pat Noonan, FC Cincinnati. I think that's a fair pick. Um, and I... This was the one that I really wasn't sure about because you could go a lot of different ways with this. So just scrolling down, I just made kind of my decision very quickly here. Um, I'm going to go with Pablo Mascherani for um, Real Salt Lake. We talk about a team that always overperforms somehow that seems to entrench their name um, in the playoff conversation when we wouldn't expect that roster to. And it is Real Salt Lake who are sitting on that 30 points um, that also Nashville are sitting on. Um, and they're fourth right now in the West with a roster that might not necessarily stack up, even if you look at uh, Seattle and Portland, but the way that they actually play when they take the field and the way they played as a unit, even coming in from last year into this year, I had questions and they've answered them and, and just seem to always be able to produce. They've been on a little bit of a rough streak recently, haven't won in the last four, but they're still fourth in the West and they look poised to, you know, make a run for the playoffs. And, and that is something that I had anticipated. And I can attribute a lot of that back to Pablo. And I, th- I think his, um, what he's meant to this team uh, ever since he's stepped into the job has just been immense. Uh, Tim, what, uh, who, who is your manager, I guess? Yeah, I did, I did not 
have the same difficulty that Andre said with it in picking Pat Noonan. When you look at what FC Cincinnati represented their first three years in the league, including, like Andre said, last year, basically this same roster. Yes, there have been some changes, but they were, they were a meme with how bad they were. And this year they're in a playoff position, and I think they're going to continue being in a playoff position. For me, it was an easy choice. Layup for Pat Noonan. I I think it's fair by the way. Like I by not being that um the, that 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 third vote, I I can still understand why you guys picked Pat Noonan and I'm I'm with you guys on that. Okay, uh rolling along. Let's try and hit these a little faster because I know Andres you have to uh you know bounce out. Um looking at the best game of the season, uh the game that kind of was the most captivating, I guess, of the season, because we've had quite a few. Uh Andres, I'll start with you. Maybe it's recency bias because it was pretty pretty recent, but I'm going to go with the NYC FC Cincinnati 4-4 midweek game from about a week ago. Super entertaining, 3-0, 4-3 the other way, back to 4-4, almost a winner that doesn't that gets called off. Um, just super fun game to watch. Yeah, I I I like that as well. Um, I think it's tough for me. I think I'll say. Uh, that that just because of the record breaking nature of it, and I love seeing the, the crowds. Uh, Charlotte's first game at home, even though they lost, just seeing that crowd and just they were just going crazy. Um, even even with the loss, I, I think was a lot of fun to see, just because of the new team and kind of the whole nature of that. That's the one moment that I guess kind of really sticks with me in my head. But there've been a bunch of good games. Tim, what do you got? Yeah, I. Uh... I'm I'm kind of a sadist, I guess. My, mine is the mine is the Philly DC game, just because I think it's really funny. Um, I think I reserve the right to to pick games because of comedy, and therefore therefore I will. Um, so yeah, it, it was the seven zero game. Um, obviously, you see some exciting moments as well, but really, it's the it's just the sheer kind of car wreck uh, nature of watching that DC performance and then seeing Philly potentially find their stride that that they had been missing for a little while too. Yeah. And as we roll into kind of the next category, the crate, just the craziest moment, um, that'll kind of be mine. Just the seven goals, just that's just insane. Like I, it's not really crazy in that the goals were, I mean, none of them were ridiculous in nature and the game wasn't that crazy. Oh, actually, you know what? Late late stage because I completely forgot about a few weeks earlier when uh, Paul Rushing, the Union trainer, tried to fight like the NYCFC team. So actually, you know that that I guess the Union seven no win will be my second moment. I think my first moment will be maybe as a Union homer, but when our trainer tried to you know fight a professional soccer team, that'll be my craziest moment. Andres, what do you got? Yeah, that was going to be mine. Was the was the Union NYC scuff up that we had about a week and a half ago or two weeks ago? So okay, Tim, what do you got? Yeah, mine also involves NYCFC, but it's it's the three penalty kicks uh, against New England. Just first time that's happened um, in MLS, and um, the fact that obviously the middle one was a little sketchy makes it kind of crazy. But uh, the the combination of the three of them was was especially crazy. Yeah, yeah. Rolling along here, uh, biggest surprise of the season. You go a lot of different ways with us, Andres. Which way did you go? It's got to be Austin, right? I mean, I thought I think we all thought they were going to be better than they were last year, but I don't think any of us saw them right now top of the supporter shield standings 20 games in, so that's mine. I think for me, 
it's got to be either Austin or FC Cincinnati. And I guess just to make it a little different, I'll say FC Cincinnati because we look at the wooden spoon, right? Right? What was it? Two, three times wooden spoon winner and, and you know, projected to be the wooden spoon. And, and now coming in sixth, um, have basically been above the playoff line for most of the season. Um, you guys gave the credit to Noonan. I'll kind of just say, I'll direct your comments into kind of what I would say, but um, they, they've been my surprise, I think, just because you don't expect the wooden spoon uh, challenger to you know be a playoff team the next year. Uh, Tim? Yeah, I'll, I'll cast the deciding vote, I guess. I'm, I'm on Cincinnati with this one. Um, Austin's, I think, rags to riches, like Delta might be a little bit bigger, but just the expectation that Cincinnati was ever going to turn it around just wasn't there, and, and yet here they are. Yeah, yep. Uh, I'm with you guys on that. Um, you know, biggest, I guess we both, we kind of all gave our biggest overperforming teams or, or, or surprise teams. What's our biggest underperforming team of the season? I think you can go a lot of different ways with this, Andre, or Andres again. So which way did you go? Uh, unfortunately for me, it's going to be Colorado. Um, top of the West last year, pretty much brought back the same team, added Jossie a couple, uh, about a month into the season. Um, and I think Robert Frazier is a good coach, and it hasn't been good this year. So I think that's pretty pretty obvious one, Colorado for me. Yeah, I I can see that. I think maybe I'll just say New England, just because for me it's it's hard to reconcile just the the pure drop. And I wasn't on the like this team's the greatest team in the world because I think that a lot of those points you know points can be lucky, and I think a lot of those points did come from you know it. In like separate incidents of luck and or Matt Turner, but um, I think just seeing the drop off and seeing them being ninth and just not particularly want to turn on a Revolution game this year maybe makes me say that they're the biggest underperformer so far. Yet they could still bounce back in the playoffs and change that by season's end. Uh, Tim, what do you got? Yeah, I I understand the New England pick, but I, I think for much of last year I thought um Carlos Heel was kind of skating on reputation and and kind of building his reputation based on the previous reputation. He was good but maybe not as good as it seemed at the time and when you lose Matt Turner first to injury and then to transfer, um the expectation is that you're going to get quite a bit worse. Um I'm a big Matt Turner guy, so I'm with Andres again. I I think it's it's got to be Colorado for me from first in the west to whatever whatever we are yeah, seeing 13. in Denver. Yeah. yeah it's it's yeah. it's not been pretty. That's not pretty at all. That's that's a pretty big drop, and I, I can 100% get behind that as well. Um, kind of the if we had an East pick and a West pick, I think those two would do a pretty good job of you know that that's basically it. Um, next next best newcomer of the year. So we have a lot of guys coming in in the summer, but so far, uh, you know, looking at the guys who came in in the winter, um, Andres, who's your best newcomer so far in MLS? So I I'm not sure I don't <laughs> I don't think I have one. Do we have a list? Because I can't think of anybody that's been that's made a huge impact already coming in. Seems like almost all the big the big transfers are are coming in mid season. What's what are our options here? Yeah, I I'm kind of with you. I think you can say maybe maybe there isn't one. Um, if I had to you know throw one out there maybe just because of his kind of impact immediately maybe alan velasco for uh dallas um he's been pretty bright and he scored that uh that amazing free kick goal or and uh, the the rocket i guess coming in off the bench in like a second game or something like that but there hasn't been a ton of there hasn't been a standout that's for yeah, sure i'll, I'll, give, I'll give one i got i got one i got one it hasn't been great but i can go with leo campana with miami 
okay. scoring some goals early on. He's been kind of cold lately. Um, maybe that that could be a, a pick, but not not a lot to choose from. Seems like. Jamie, seem confident. Yeah, Mikhail Ura. You, this this is right up your alley. Uh, you should, should know that. Uh, I think I think he hasn't necessarily put it put up huge numbers statistically, but I think when you get rid of the players that the the union got rid of, and and it still looks like you upgraded at the position, I think you have to give a shout out to that guy. Okay. I hey, I won't complain. <laughs> I like that, but I you know I I, I can I I think sometimes. The, the recent goals, um, the two goals versus DC might help out with that a little bit. But hey, I I think he's been good, and he satisfied the XG discussion. I think so far, I he missed a couple early and then got injured, and that that kind of has affected my the way I've seen it. I think a little bit, but yeah, I'm okay with that. Um, moving on, uh, coming kind of towards the end of our awards, the best summer transfer window for a team so far, and there's really only two picks here, so. Do you go Toronto or did you go LAFC, Andres? So, I think in terms of what, <laughs> what happened? No, I, I, I thought I thought you said like you didn't pick either no, of those no, teams. No, no, I didn't. No, I didn't. Oh, okay, so okay, okay. If, if you look at the transfer window in and of itself, I think you could go with Toronto, but I think they've got so many holes um, to fill still that I'm not sure it's going to make a difference um, to where they ultimately end up. So I'm going to go with LAFC just because I think. Uh, Bale is gonna is going to take that attack to another level altogether, and they might end up stomping some teams pretty bad here. So I'll go with the LAFC. Okay. Okay. Right. I at first I thought you said you didn't pick either, and I'm like, oh my gosh, like how did like wh- what you are you doing? Go with but, um, or Houston? No, you could, you could, you could. I, I I would be okay with Columbus, but I, for me it has to be Toronto because I think Tim, you mentioned earlier, like the the before and after Delta kind of. I think for me that's going to be the greatest uh, for Toronto because when you bring in um, Insignia, Bernadeschi, and Mark Anthony K as well in the midfield, who we know is a stud. Um, I, I you can om- oh and Chris Decido in the back and moving out Salcedo. I don't see a way this team doesn't get markedly better um, before to after kind of. So at least in just terms of what the tr- what this transfer window did for them, I've got to say Toronto, but I can understand why you would say LAFC. Tim? Yeah, I, I might end up being a hypocrite here that you've now pointed out because I think LAFC, just because they're already so good, if they don't get a single minute out of Chiellini or Bale, they're, they're, they're still very good, but now they have some super marketable stuff, and I know that's, uh, that's probably going to make some people cringe who don't like the marketability stuff when it comes to MLS, but the fact of the matter is those guys are also going to play, and they're going to play pretty significantly, and that's it. So, um, you know, they're going to add that those two talents, and, and um, when it's a team that's already elite, it can only get better. Yep. Um, I, I can understand that, like, I don't think Toronto's going to overtake LAFC in the back half of the season. Don't get me wrong. Um, Andres had to bounce. So, uh, we hit our last item kind of, what are we most excited for, um, for the second half of the season? And, and for me, it is seeing how these new transfers will, um, make an impact on, you know, their teams just because we haven't really had a transfer window like this in the history of the league. Um, Insignia, uh, Chris Decido, Bernadeschi, all from the Italian League. Um, and, and we look at Bale, obviously he, him being a massive name, Chiellini, 
also from Juventus. Uh, Lingard, Jesse Lingard, apparently being shopped amongst the Florida and California teams, which is a kind of weird distinction. I don't really see Orlando City being the destination, but whatever. If he comes, that'll be awesome as well. So and Cucho Hernandez, and the the list goes on. Um, and so seeing how these uh, players are going to impact these teams is, is for me kind of the most important thing. I we haven't even mentioned uh, that crazy Dallas Houston derby and uh, Ache Ache, and uh, he's been you know pretty good as well for Houston and early in this what first two games that he's played. So you just the list goes on and on and on. Um, and seeing how those guys are going to play is certainly the most exciting thing for me. Tim, uh, what's your what are you most excited for for the uh, second half? I'm really excited to see the Supporters' Shield race, which at this point is kind of shaping up to be the race for the Western Conference as well. Austin and LAFC are right neck and neck right now. Um, Austin ahead on points. LAFC ahead on, on points per game right now because they've played that uh, one fewer game, as you mentioned earlier. But um, there hasn't been a competitive Supporters' Shield race um, I, I mean, I guess they're the, the one in, I want to say it was 2018 between Red Bulls and Atlanta. And before that, there had been teams running away with, with the Supporters' Shield and, and for the most part running away with a points record since like 2015. So I'm excited to see that because um, competition right at the top of the league is something that doesn't happen frequently enough. And I think it's going to be really exciting to see, especially because the teams right at the top at this point are in the same conference. So there's a little bit more meaningfulness than um, a team can say, oh, we don't care about the Supporters' Shield, we care about MLS Cup. Well, when they're in the same conference, it's it, MLS Cup runs through one of your cities and you have to beat the other one out in the regular season to host that uh, conference final game if you want to be the one to make it to MLS Cup. Yeah, that, and that, that distinction is what makes it super interesting. It's kind of an awesome, like the Supporter Shield winner and kind of that priority order for the MLS Cup final. Um, the, the pandemic shortened season, uh, Philly and Toronto were going at it, but that's a little different. Um, yeah, in a full Philly, season, we really Philly haven't kind had of, a close. Philly kind of... Uh, I don't want to say let Toronto catch up, but they were they were comfortably ahead for a little bit, and then it got closer at the end. But I didn't it didn't feel like they were going to get overtaken, right? Yeah, at the end it ended up being a, th- a three point thing. I think it did come down to the final day, but y- yeah, we haven't we haven't really had a good race since 2018, um, and, and that was a heck of a race because was it Red Bulls beating the point record. Um, and so that was super interesting. And like this, this I don't think we're going to be Atlanta because they thought Atlanta was going to win it. And it was, it was kind of a crazy day actually, but, uh, something that we don't see enough. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I hope to see something like that again sometime soon. And maybe we'll see it this year. Um, I, none of these teams are on track to break the, um, points record set by New England last year, but it's still going to be super interesting because we just talk about like the pure talent in the league now, and it's just all there. And, you know, Driussi potentially being the MVP or one of the MVP candidates on Austin and Bale with LAFC and what and maybe Lingard too, what that's going to look like. That's just absolutely insane. So yeah, I'm with you that I, I can't wait for kind of seeing how the back half of the season is going to play out. Um, and, and that's basically it for our midseason awards. Um, thanks, Tim, uh, for, you know, joining us for this little fantasy of uh, if, if we could give out even more awards. Um, and, uh, I think now that we've kind of hit the end of the pod, I'll throw it to you, um, to kind of tell the people, uh, where they can find out, uh, more about 
you, your pod, and kind of all of that. So, yeah, throw it yeah, to you. Yeah, my name is Tim Sullivan. If you are very interested in Virginia Tech, which I imagine very few people are, you can follow my personal Twitter account, um, which is at SullivTI, S-U-L-L-I-V-T-I. But for the soccer interested, and particularly the Nashville SC interested, the website and podcast are both club and country. The uh, URL is clubcountryusa.com. The Twitter is at clubcountryusa. Um, if you search club and country on Apple Podcasts, I, I am, it brings me no pleasure to report that we will probably not be one of the first couple, but look for the one with blue, gold, and white in the logo, um, and that is us. I, I, I love um, you know the stuff that you guys put out. I see your Twitter come across my feed all the time. You do it with Wes Bowling, who's the radio voice of um, Nashville as well. So you kind of the top quality of Nashville content and um, you guys are definitely the best independent Nashville SC podcast. So I'd, uh, I get, I tell people check you guys out a hundred percent. And you had uh, our boy Adam Bell's on right recently as well. Yeah. Like maybe a month and a half ago. Yeah. Bell's joined us. Um, We've had, we, the one thing that I will, I will, you and I talked about this before we started recording. I'm always very comfortable, uncomfortable, excuse me. Uh, kind of bragging on myself, but I, I have been very pleased with the number of big guests that we've been able to have, including Bells, um, even though he's he's a very accessible celebrity, but um, we have people who cover um, the teams that Nashville SC is going to play. We've had national media people, um, Matt Doyle, Alexi Lawless. Um, you can either boo or cheer uh, Alexi, depending on how you feel about him. Um, John Strong, John Champion, a bunch of uh, major names in the industry and in the sport. So uh, that's the one thing that I think we really hang our hat on is being, um, you know, hardworking to go out and get top-notch guests. And, and maybe we'll have you on there soon, Joey. We'll see. Hey, maybe someday. <laughs> maybe someday. Um, but no, yeah, you guys are you guys are the top, you know, the the top tier of you know really MLS content, and it is your podcast is kind of a um, testament to what MLS can be and kind of the local national interaction um, is great. And you guys are a great uh, place to get your national coverage and your league coverage as well. So yeah, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your expertise, letting us kind of bounce our Nashville questions off of you, Tim and um, listeners. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you sometime next week as always. Um, And, you know, uh, we really hit the the dog days of summer. Now Um, we got games uh this coming up weekend and an empty midweek so we can really streamline the games that you watched and we probably watched the same stuff so uh until next week thank you guys so much for listening enjoy life enjoy the beautiful game and we will see you then